Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jessica Kurzane about her work in Jewish studies. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. I am really glad you're here and that we get to talk about this. Before we dive into what you do, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I live in Chicago in Oak Park, Illinois, which is outside of Chicago, and I teach at the University of Chicago, um, Yiddish language and also literature and a um, variety of other courses about largely about Jewish studies. Um, and I also am a translator, a literary translator, and an editor of a journal called Ingevab, the Journal of Yiddish Studies. So that all keeps me rather busy. Um, and yeah, and I also have two uh, fairly young children, which has been a significant part of my uh, academic life in general, and especially this year. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your own academic journey. When did you decide you wanted this to be your field of study? And and what was your path through academia like? Um, so I received my undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia. I had a BA in English li- language literature and Jewish studies. And partly along the way to that um, undergraduate degree, the summer before my senior year of college, I went to the Yiddish Book Center, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, they have a summer fellowship to learn Yiddish language. And it was my first exposure to Yiddish, although my I have some family history with Yiddish, but no one in my immediate family spoke it. My grandparents, I only had one grandparent who spoke it and not to me. Um, and so it was my first time really experiencing it. And the reason that I went there um, was mostly just sort of curiosity. It sounded interesting. Um, And also because it was a paid fellowship and my parents told me that I couldn't do anything over the summer that wasn't a paid opportunity. So that was a significant, I think, factor for me uh, and worth mentioning. And also um, because I felt that I I was studying Jewish American literature and I felt that I couldn't really understand it without knowing just at least just a little bit of Yiddish and having an understanding of the kind of linguistic background that these writers who were writing in English had come from. So that was really the goal. Uh, But when I got there, I found myself really enamored with the world of Yiddish studies in particular, which is this kind of tight-knit, extremely dedicated community of people who who really um, have a lot of, I felt like there was a lot of flexibility in the field because if you were working on a writer, there was a good chance that that person might not be translated or that nobody else was working on that person or that all the existing scholarship was kind of older or Indianish. And so there was a real way to be like almost anything you did would be uh, pioneering. So that was a real exciting feeling for me. Um, and then I graduated, I, I took Yiddish at the university of Virginia um, in my senior year. Uh, and then I graduated and I, spent a year at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem doing a non-degree granting uh, graduate program where I continued to learn uh, Yiddish and I also had Hebrew from undergraduate. And so I worked on those two languages together and from there applied to PhD programs. 
I went to Columbia University um, to get a PhD in Yiddish studies. It's one of the only universities that offers a PhD in Yiddish studies. And um, yeah, and I was there until um, 2017 is when I received my PhD. Um, and so, and while I was there, um, my husband is a, is a rabbi. He was a rabbinical student at the time. And so he got a, a job in Kansas um, when he graduated. And so we went to Kansas and I wrote my dissertation from there at a distance. And I had two children while I was dissertating. So it was a kind of a long process for me. Um, and then I finished up and started teaching uh, as an adjunct at the University of Kansas and also as a part-time um, Jewish day school teacher. I taught eighth and eighth grade world history. And then, um, and then I landed this job. So I came here to the University of Chicago, where I'm the assistant instructional professor of Yiddish at the University of Chicago. And um, yeah, and it's been, I've been extremely, extremely lucky and fortunate with this, um, this position that I'm currently in. In dual career couples, there's a lot of difficulty in moving. Was he able to simultaneously find a, a job that he wanted to move there for as well? Yes, we were, I have to say, incredibly fortunate in a way that, um, like, it feels like it almost, it's, it's deeply unfair how fortunate we were um, that he, um, we agreed to move here. We decided to move here on my position alone and that he would um, just apply for things and hope that he would find something. And it happened to be there was only one uh, reform rabbi position in all of the Chicago area open the year that we were coming here and he got it. And so, um, wow. so we both started here at the same time. Yeah, uh, that he is. is the assistant rabbi at Oak Park temple in Oak Park, Illinois, which is where we live. And yeah, it's, we've been, um, really I, just so extraordinarily fortunate. That is really fortunate. And it's also encouraging to know that good things can happen. <laughs> um, especially now. Um, I'm all for the the good news where we can find it. Um, so, but if we could talk a little bit about your position, because it falls within the definition of contingent faculty, does it not? Yes, it does. Can you unpack for listeners what that means? Because especially right now, there's a great deal of discussion about what contingent positions are, how secure they are, and what, what that term really means. And it, it seems like it can be a fathom fairly broad term. So what does it mean in your case? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have to say that um, contingency has, there are many different ways of experiencing contingency and I've experienced two of them. So at the University of Kansas, I was an adjunct professor who taught on a course by course basis. I taught one course, uh, one semester, and then I actually taught another course, another semester. So it was I was contracted for an individual course and paid per course and not very much money. Um, and I didn't know until like basically when the course had begun, whether it was going, I had enough enrollment for it to go through. It was an extremely um, unstable form of employment um, that I was experiencing. Here, it's, a, it's still considered contingent, but it's a very different kind of position in terms of stability. Um, I am not eligible for tenure and never will be in this particular um, constellation of, um, 
circumstance of my career. Um, but I have, I'm offered contracts that are, um, they're long. So my current contract is two years um, and that it may indeed become longer contracts than that. And it's a full-time position. Um, and there is no limit on how many contracts I can have, which some universities do have um, positions that are renewable up to a certain number of times. That's not the case in my current position. Um, and so as far as contingent employment goes, this is, I believe, sort of the most stable that a person could expect. It's a very good position as a contingent position. One of the things that it means um, in my particular position is not um, does not have any publishing or um, research expectations or support, um, at least officially. Although my department is extremely supportive. Um, and if I ask for help with going to a conference or something, that's something that the department often will give me. Also, I have support from uh, Jewish Studies, which is not my home department, um, to do things like that. But um, it's not built into my contract. I have to ask for it uh, instead of receiving it. I don't have a separate research fund or anything like that. Um, I don't have anything like sabbatical or research leave or, um, or you know, I, I teach it's the quarter system, so this will sound like a very large number, but I teach seven courses a year um, in the in the system. And so it's a very teaching heavy um, position as well. And this may seem like an obvious question, but is it four quarters in the year, one quarter being summer and optional? Yes. Yeah. So I don't I, I don't have to work in the summers. Um, I work in the fall, winter and spring quarters. So you mentioned that this position is not tenure track and it's not eligible to convert to tenure track and therefore the, the types of conference work and editing and publishing that um, scholars associate with tenure track positions is not required of you, yet you personally require that of yourself. You, you do conference work, you edit a journal, you have uh, a book out. Um, do you have tenure track ultimately in mind as a goal or are these really passions and, and you Jessica as a person wouldn't not do them no matter whether the job track required it or not? It's a really good question. Um, I don't, I mean, it's possible that I could see myself pursuing a tenure track position in the future. I'm certainly not going to say that I won't, uh, but I don't, necessarily see that for myself, uh, primarily because I like my current position very much and realize that I'm, I'm very fortunate to have it. And I, I suppose that's what I, I see myself here for a long time. Um, part of the reason why I do the work that, or put out the book that I did and edit the journal that I did is actually that I began both of those things um, before I had my current position. So while I was at home with the kids and adjuncting and teaching part-time in this high school program. I also began editing this journal um, first as the pedagogy editor for the journal for Ingeweb. It has sort of multiple managing editors. And then um, I transitioned to editor-in-chief. And so I was already really deeply involved in this project before um, I, I came here and I didn't know what kind of work I would be doing after. Um, and at the same time, also, while I was doing all those other things in Kansas, I received a translation fellowship from the Yiddish Book Center, which was a paid opportunity to um, to learn. And it was a, it was a program to professionalize uh, literary translators from Yiddish. And so it was 
three weekends in Amherst, Massachusetts to learn the craft of translating and also a mentorship. And the, the um, idea was that you would work on a book length translation. And that ultimately became uh, my book. So I received a contract for this book the summer that I started my current position. Um, so some of it is, is that I was continuing work from previously, but some of it is that I love it. And um, it's why I got my PhD or one of the reasons I'm also very passionate about teaching. But I think it also feeds my teaching in a lot of ways. Currently, I'm teaching a course. Uh, I'm teaching two courses on women who wrote in Yiddish, one that's taught in Yiddish and one that's taught in English. And both of those are very related to the conference work and the papers and the translations that I do. So it informs my teaching. Um, and I also will mention that my uh, position as editor-in-chief of Ingevev is a paid position. So it's a kind of like a, a supplemental uh, gig that I have. Um, and that's, I don't know, that, I think that's really important to emphasize that because my current position does not support me in terms of like financially for doing something like editing, and it doesn't have any role to play in my um, contract renewal or anything like that. Uh, but outside of that, I am compensated for being the editor-in-chief of this journal. Um, and it certainly helps me, I think, professionally in a lot of different ways. It's been really important for me as um, a way to network and get to know people and uh, stay connected to the world of scholarship, um, even if I'm not producing as much as maybe some of my colleagues are. If we could circle back a little, when you first got that opportunity to go to Amherst while you were still an undergrad and you leapt into learning Yiddish, that seems to be a real turning point in your educational trajectory and in what became your passions. Yeah, I think it really was. Um, I had, I think, thought about pursuing a Jewish studies graduate degree I actually wasn't sure. I thought about becoming a rabbi, like my husband currently is. I also thought about becoming a cantor, uh, which is um, a person who's in charge of the music in a in a religious a Jewish religious service. Um, so I was I was interested in Jewish studies in general. Um, but when I went to um, the program at the um, Yiddish Book Center, I met a lot of academics there. They they had they brought people in to do um, like sort of one week long seminars. And so it was an exposure to a world of Jewish studies outside of my own university. And it helped me to kind of picture myself in that world in a different way by just by seeing more faces in it. Um, and also I think um, I remember sitting in the lunchroom with someone who was talking to one of these people about how she wanted to go to graduate school uh, and earn a PhD and just listening in on that conversation and having a chance to watch mentorship happen and learn about that world a little bit was I think very significant for me. Um, and when I went back to my own university, I remember telling uh, someone who would become an important mentor of mine, uh, Professor James Leffler, about this experience and knowing, having a better sense of what I wanted from him as a mentor and knowing what I could ask him. Uh, and he ended up being very important in my journey because uh, as I was thinking about applying to PhD programs, I think I might've been the first undergraduate he ever mentored. He was a new professor and he sat me down in his office 
and told me exactly what questions to ask and how to approach people and how to write an email to a professor to tell them that I was inquiring about their program. And he even got me in touch with graduate students at each of the programs I was applying to and told me what to ask them. Um, and it was, uh, it was really, it was so helpful and important for me. Learning a language so well that you can translate it is a highly complex undertaking. What background did you have in other languages prior to learning Yiddish? I had taken French in high school um, and up through AP. And actually, I remember I took the entrance, they took the exam, the placement exam to continue with French in college. And I placed so low that I decided it wasn't worth it to continue. Um, and I took Hebrew as an undergraduate. And then uh, I started Yiddish while I was still uh, also taking Hebrew and took Hebrew and Yiddish in, uh, in graduate school. Um, but I, I did not come from a bilingual background. I um, don't think of myself as someone who, for whom learning languages comes easily. I'm not a very systematic thinker. Um, I do, I find it sometimes difficult to give explanations to my students about grammatical concept, concepts because it's not something that comes naturally to me. Um, but I think for me, it was just that I was extremely motivated and curious. And so I kept up with it and just kept reading and, and kept trying. Um, but I do have an enormous amount of imposter syndrome. I was uh, just talking yesterday to my husband about how I what I feel sometimes sort of sorry for the language of Yiddish that it has me representing it um, and teaching it to my students because of this feeling of like, well, you know, I am not a native speaker and um, what right do I have to do this? But uh, with the case of Yiddish, which is a less commonly taught language, um, there's a kind of also this enormous reward and responsibility to know that I'm involved in the project of keeping it going and keeping it alive. And, um, and I, I think that's part of what drew me to it was this, almost this, this feeling of calling of um, having a role to play in it. And it seems like there was a lot of affirmation that you found there uh, in Amherst while you were studying that the community of, of other scholars that you were encountering were encouraging you and saying, yes, do this. Yes, exactly. And I don't know that that's the case in everywhere in the world of Yiddish. I think um, some people but they kind of butt heads with the world of Yiddish or have this feeling that like you're always being told that you're inadequate or your Yiddish isn't good enough. That was never really my experience or only until kind of um, later in the game, but at least in the beginning, my um, the, the way the messaging that I received was you're in the room and therefore Yiddish is yours and we're very happy to have you and you can take it and run with it and be creative with it. Um, and that was, I think, um, really important for me that it was such a welcoming environment. Um, even when I didn't always necessarily feel that I deserved the welcome, it was always there. And when did Ingeveb come into the picture? Did they reach out to you? Did you see a posting? How did, how did that become part of the story of your process as a scholar as well? So when I was in graduate school, um, it was the, the year before we left for Kansas. So um, I was just coming off of my maternity leave with my first child. 
I was working in the library of the Jewish Theological Seminary, um, writing my dissertation. And a good friend of mine who was getting his PhD from the Jewish Theological Seminary approached me to tell me about this project that he was starting with a group of friends, uh, which was this journal of, of Yiddish studies. It's a very young journal, it's a very new journal. Um, and so he asked me if I wanted to be on the editorial board of the journal. And one of the one of the stated goals of the journal was in, in particular to provide support for uh, emerging scholars. The two people who founded the journal were at the time graduate students. The entire editorial board were at the time graduate students, although now we have we're no longer um, we're no longer majority graduate students. We do still have some graduate students on our board. Um, and so I I sort of hit the the jackpot in that uh, I happened to be in the right place at the right time and was able to become part of this really amazing organization. And one of the one of the goals was to uh, support people like myself in building our careers around Yiddish studies and also to um, to be an address for Yiddish studies. There was no um, single place for Yiddish studies. Uh, there was no Yiddish studies journal at the time. And so we were able to kind of figure out, well, what would we want that to be? Um, and it's a born digital journal. And so what kind of flexibility does that allow us? And how can we uh, bring in voices who maybe aren't from the academy? And so we started off right away with a blog as well as um, a pedagogy section and uh, a translation section. And so um, we are in part sort of a literary journal where we publish literary translations as well as um, an academic journal. We have a peer-reviewed side of the journal, but it's not the only thing we do. So yeah, so I, I started that from the beginning, I was just on the editorial board and then um, and then I became the, the pedagogy editor, which at the beginning was a three hour a week position and then it grew into a five hour a week position. And then, um, and then I became the editor in chief. Uh, I think that was three years ago now. You mentioned that editor-in-chief is a paid position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, How it is. And so so are all of, we pay all of our um, managing editors as well. And where does the funding support for that come from? So the, um, the journal was initially funded by a seed grant by the uh, Nomi Kadar Foundation, which is um, an organization that um, that supports Yiddish culture, and uh, and since then we have received a number of um, a number of different major donations from foundations, um, and in addition we're fu we're found we're funded by uh, individual donors. So there is no um, it's a it's a it's a um, free open access journal. You don't have to pay a membership fee. You don't have to um, subscribe, but we do have these sort of like fundraising appeals and um, and we are funded by uh, a number of different family foundations, um, including still the, the Nomi Prower Kadar Foundation, which was our, our founding donor, but also uh, the Koster Foundation, Broxmeyer Family Foundation, Levinson Foundation, Baker Family Foundation, Ashran Foundation. So all these different um, uh, foundations that support work in Yiddish studies, uh, among other things, uh, as well as our individual donors. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important for 
journals and for scholarship projects that are happening outside uh, an academic department to know that there, if there's a will, there's a way to pay the scholars and to, at the same time that you're paying the scholars who are doing the work to make the information available at low or no cost to the people who need it. Yeah, that was, I think, very important from the beginning and remains important. And we also pay our contributors. It's not an enormous amount of money, um, but it was important to us, especially because many of our contributors for the blog, for pedagogy, for translations, are um, contingent or or graduate students. Um, and we wanted to make sure that the work they were doing for us was not uncompensated. And then from there... You were researching your dissertation, and when you were researching a footnote, you stumbled across something that would inspire you to write an entire book. Can you take us through that story, please? Sure. So my dissertation is called The Melting Plot. Um, it's about inter-ethnic romance in Jewish American fiction in the early 20th century in English and Yiddish. And what I mean by inter-ethnic romance is romances between Jews and non-Jews um, and how they're portrayed. And so I was writing for, for the dissertation, I had said something about the idea of free love. And one of the comments that someone had given me was that I needed to define what the ideology of free love was. Uh, excuse me, my phone is making noises. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, what the ideology of free love was at the time. And so I wasn't sure where to begin. Um, and just sort of on a whim, I went to the website of the Yiddish Book Center and uh, typed into their search engine the words for free love in Yiddish, which is Freie Liebe. This is before the Yiddish Book Center had um, OCR character recognition um, for the inside, the body of the Yiddish text, but they did have a search engine for the titles. Um, and so the first hit was this book by Miriam Karpolov, Tugbuch von an Elinda Madel, Liebe, The Diary of a Lonely Girl or the Battle Against Free Love. Uh, so it had the word free love in the title. I never heard of her. Uh, I started reading. You know, it turns out that actually like other people had been reading her before and had heard of her before, but I hadn't, uh, which um, I think is important because among other things, it's, um, I think my own Yiddish education had a paucity of information about women who wrote in Yiddish, which has become now a, a pet topic of mine. Um, so I hadn't really read even very many people, women who wrote uh, prose fiction at all at that point in Yiddish. Uh, and I started reading this book and I had never read anything like it in Yiddish before. I'd never read anyone who sounded so much like me in Yiddish before. I'd always felt that Yiddish was in some ways like, I felt like I was an outsider looking into the language itself because it was so masculine uh, because everyone I read was men, were men. Um, and I started reading it and it was funny um, and really gutsy and surprising and Later, when I finished the dissertation and was um, applying to this translation program, um, I decided that I wanted to take it on as a project to translate this book. Um, and so that's what I did. So um, so then it came out last year with Syracuse University Press, the translation Diary of a Lonely Girl or the Battle Against Free Love. 
um, with an introduction about the author who I researched sort of after I had already uh, translated her book. I started doing a little bit of research about her um, and spoke to her family members, and I continue to research her, and I actually continue also to translate her um, because she's very funny and very gutsy and uh, surprising. And um, this is a, a kind of story that I think um, there isn't enough of in what has been translated from Yiddish and what how Yiddish gets represented in English. Um, so just just briefly to tell you a little bit about what it what the content of the book is is that it's a first person narrative, a diary about a woman in early 20th century in uh, in roughly 1917 uh, living in New York who um, is dating and she's encountering all of these men. She names them from A, A, B, C, D and onward. She doesn't give them names um, who are awful to her. And she is kind of stuck between these men who are trying to convince her to have free love affairs, which is to say to have sex outside of marriage and these uh, landladies that she's living with because she's a boarder, she doesn't have the resources to have her own apartment, um, who are very concerned about the respectability of their establishment and soon are sort of policing her behavior and making sure that she's being appropriately modest. And so she's pulled in these different directions and um, is trying to kind of defend her honor in both of these different directions. Um, and the way that she is able to do that is really through the force of her own wit. She's able to deflect these men and their desires by um, by being witty and by um, sort of insulting them subtly. Um, and so I think it's it's a very funny book um, and remains very relevant in a lot of ways. It's fascinating that when you found this book, it was almost a hundred years exactly after it had been published. That's right, yeah. And when it originally came out, though, before it was published as a book, it was serialized in a Yiddish newspaper. Can you talk about what what that means for listeners? Sure, yeah. So Miriam Kapilov was primarily uh, published in newspapers. It happens to be that the vast majority of Yiddish literature uh, first appeared in, um, in periodicals. There was a, a vast uh, Yiddish press that was very interested in publishing fiction, and in part because, um, in part because uh, that helped to sell the newspapers. And in particular, Miriam Parpalov's work was definitely used as a selling point for the newspapers. So anyway, so it was published in these short installments that would appear uh, toward the end of the newspaper and in between different bits of news. Uh, and sometimes the the entries in the diary would reflect in some way about the news of the day or things that were uh, contemporary to it. So there's the, the characters go to see a movie that elsewhere in the paper uh, is being advertised or is being reviewed, that kind of thing. Um, and it so it appeared in these sort of short segments. And um, and my sense is that it was so successful. It was her first serialized uh, novel for this particular newspaper, it was so successful that almost immediately after it ended, she started serializing another one. Uh, and so it had a commercial appeal. And also the, um, the book was published you know, almost immediately in book form afterward. 
uh, with no editing at all. In fact, the early section of the book, um, it was serialized in sort of like longer segments and those longer segments were titled and separated. And later on, it was serialized in shorter segments, but more frequently. And those um, didn't have titles. And so when you open up the book, about a third of the way through, the chapter divisions go away entirely. And it's just one great big block of text, uh, which I ended up separating out into chapters. And so that gives you a sense of exactly how unedited the book form is. It's really just a book representation of the serialized um, novel, which really, it's... um, it's very much like watching a TV series where every episode, everything that happens uh, has to end with a, a note of suspense in order that to keep you coming back the next day. And there's also a lot of repetition of plot arcs, because if you are um, waiting an entire week until the next issue comes out, what you really want to see is something similar from what you saw last week, because that was what you liked um, and you wanted have a little bit more of it. And so there is, there's a way in which the pacing of the book and the kind of repetitiveness of the book um, echoes what, what the demands were for readers who were reading, um, were reading this kind of fiction in this, in this format. And she's writing this in New York and she's emigrated from Minsk. She came over when she was a teenager and can you set the scene for us of New York in the time period that she's writing it about? You've touched on uh, free love. If you could define what that movement was for listeners and also tell us about the culture there. There's a strong uh, immigration culture and issues around that. There's political issues going on. Can you just paint a picture for us, please? Sure. Yeah. So she's she herself is an immigrant who um, she was the middle child of a family of 10. Most of her family, most of her brothers and sisters came over. Her parents did not. Um, and so, and she's living by herself in New York. She had family who lived in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, but she herself lived in a rented room by herself in uh, in New York. And that's very significant also because the narrator of, uh, of her book is in the same position. She's living by herself at a time when um, probably having come from a family where that would never would not have happened uh, in in her hometown, right? And so there's this kind of enormous feeling of independence, but also she's without the protections of her family, um, and and very vulnerable in that way. Um, it takes place during World War One. It's a time when there was an enormous amount of violence against Jews in Eastern Europe. Um, Miriam Karpilov writes elsewhere about pogroms and about. Uh, anti-Jewish violence. She doesn't write about that really at all in the diary of a lonely girl, but I do think it's a kind of significant backdrop. At the time, um, the Lower East Side of New York and also Harlem and areas that had uh, high levels of Jewish settlement were very overcrowded. Living conditions were not good. Um, This particular person lives in a rented room in somebody else's apartment with with different families. She probably doesn't have her own Uh, cooking area. She probably doesn't have her own um, like bathroom or private area. She just has a a bedroom with a door and um, it's very limited privacy. The landladies are always sort of peeking in at the door. There's one, there's one particular landlady who puts a plant in her window so that she can open her door and walk through her room to to water the plant whenever she wants and see what's going on in there. Um, And so there's very little privacy 
and it's very claustrophobic. And we know that this particular narrator is working as well. Um, and so, but we don't really see what she's working at. Uh, probably she's working in the garment industry. Many, many people, uh, Eastern European Jewish immigrants were working in that industry in very poor conditions. Um, and that's something that for whatever reason, Miriam Karpilov decides not to represent maybe because so that was something that was so uh, heavily represented elsewhere. And she figures her readers are there for the romance and not for the, um, for the working conditions, which would be sort of a different kind of uh, novel. Um, and they're all speaking Yiddish with each other. Um, there's also um, an interest in, in uh, Russian. There are Russian revolutionary thinkers and the, the free love context is very important because free love, which is um, the idea that both religion and the state should have no hand in the romantic relationships between men and women, and that marriage is in a sense a kind of slavery between men and women that, that makes love connected to the economics and uh, legality of a partnership between a man and woman where a woman has to sell her sexuality for a certain level of security. Um, so this idea of free love had to do with having romantic relationships without all of those other trappings of um, economic and political power. Um, and so that was a very, um, it, it, was a, it was a heady time for that ideology um, especially around the anarchist movement and Emma Goldman, who was a leader in that movement, who would go and give public lectures um, advocating for free love. And uh, this diarist is living in that world where there are young men who are saying to her, like, the politically current thing to do is to have an affair with me. That is, um, it shows how modern you are. It shows how radical you are. And she's saying, um, actually free love doesn't offer equality to women unless women were living in a world in which there was, there were other forms of equality because otherwise um, it just cheapens women for the marriage market, um, which still exists and which still exerts power on women. And it makes them uh, just cheap goods that, that will earn less in that market. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of a, she makes a kind of economic as well as personal um argument against free love. The author herself, um, as you say, she didn't write about or talk about the garment industry, but she did have a second job. Uh, can you tell us about the other job she had to have because she couldn't uh, fully support herself with her writing despite how prolific she was? Yeah, well, she was a photographic retoucher. I actually don't know that much about that part of her career. I think writing was her primary uh, way of earning a living. But what she did as a writer was quite diverse. She wrote short stories. She wrote um, um, serialized novels. She wrote articles and reportage. She was an editor. Um, she wrote a book called A Provincial Newspaper where she describes some of this work and how much of it there was and how she becomes uh, required to do all kinds of um, translation of mainstream um, English newspapers, how she has to um, edit fashion plates and um, deal with the kind of all of the things that went into the women's section or the women's interest sections of the newspaper and um, how it was like 
her work was so poorly valued that in order to make ends meet, she has to do quite a lot more of it than uh, would have been perhaps reasonable. And also she lived under conditions of enormous contingency. So she would have some stability with a newspaper that was serializing her work. And for as long as the serialization was going, she was earning a salary from her writing. And as soon as the newspaper decided they didn't want her anymore, she would be kind of out and have to look for work all over again and be be sort of pitching her manuscripts by hand from editorial office to editorial office, trying to get someone to uh, to buy her work. Um, and she always she aspired to have a, a position as a staff writer for a newspaper, but really didn't get that position until very late in her career. So there's this she was able to earn her money by primarily by writing and she never married and she supported herself. Um, but I do think that she always lived under a cloud of uncertainty about that. And when you started uh, researching her, you found you found a an article or an entry in an encyclopedia about her, but you also found there was not as much information about her as you would have liked. And so you undertook quite a bit of original research yourself about the author, including getting in contact with um, some of her descendants. Can you tell us about that? You, you talk about it in the introduction of the book, but for listeners who haven't had a chance to read that yet, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, so I am not the first person to have read this book, nor am I the first person to have written about Miriam Karpolov. And I, I have to acknowledge um, Ellie Kelman, who teaches at Brandeis University, who wrote an encyclopedia article about Miriam Karpolov and who has done really groundbreaking work about popular fiction in the Yiddish press in general. Um, so she's she's someone who um, did some of the most the, the, the groundbreaking work about Miriam Karpolov. Uh, and also there are entries for Miriam Karpolov in Yiddish in uh, these biographical lexicons, uh, encyclopedias of Yiddish literature, including one that's um, uh, an encyclopedia about people who wrote for the newspaper, The Forverts, where she later be- later in her career became a staff writer. So there is there are sort of basic reference materials about her, um, but very little had been written about her in English. Basically, the only thing that had been written in English about her was this this encyclopedia article by Ellie Kelman. Uh, so one of the first things that I did was just read a lot of what she had written. Um, and some of that was things that had been published in book form, which are easy to find now because the Yiddish Book Center has digitized their entire collection of books. And so Yiddish literature is very um, easily accessible and, and freely accessible for those who read Yiddish by going to that website. Um, but a lot of her other writings, most of her writings were not collected in book form. And so I had to go back and look in a lot of newspapers, um, in um, digitized newspapers to find this material um, and started translating and reading. Uh, And I also went to her archive, which she has two archives. One is at the YIVO Institute in New York. Uh, I happened to be going to the YIVO for a program for Yiddish language instructors. And so I extended my stay and was able to do some reading. I took pictures of every single document that was in that archive so I could take it home with me uh, and, and read it. So now I still have access to that archive because I have it all digitized uh, with these not very great um, photos from my cell phone and I can look at those. Um, but there's also an archive that I haven't seen that's in Connecticut. Um, so, so I was able to look at those things um, to kind of reconstruct some of what her career was like based on uh, postcards and letters and scrapbooks. She was a big scrapbooker. Um, 
And I also, during that time, was able to get in touch with her family members. Um, I was able to do that essentially by Googling. I had a feeling that I knew that she um, had all these brothers. And so I started looking for different spellings of the last name Karpilov and where these people lived. And it was, um, I felt really like, I don't know, maybe it was a little stalkerish or something to be like Googling these people. I found out that her her brothers had owned a uh, locksmith company in uh, in Connecticut. And I called the locksmith company, but those brothers had sold it long ago and the current owners knew nothing about them. Anyway, long story short, I found on Twitter, I think, um, one of his, one of um, Miriam Karpilov's nephew's children and was able to be in touch with her. And then the floodgates opened and I met various members of the family virtually over the phone and over um, emails and so forth. Um, And her nephew, David, mailed me photos that he had of hers, which then I immediately sent to the Yiddish Book Center and asked them to digitize because I didn't want to be responsible for the originals. Um, and these they're beautiful photographs. She loved to be photographed. She was really excited, I think, about photography itself because she was that was part of her career. But also, I think she was excited about her own image. She saw herself as a bohemian. She um, she was very sassy. She thought very much about her appearance. And you can really see that in these photo, these beautiful staged photographs, um, including one where she's laying on the bed in a, like kind of a, uh, a nightgowny looking outfit. Um, there's these, these extraordinary pictures. Um, and so I was able to look at all these different pictures and, and talk to uh, the nephew and learn much more about her that way. When you were researching her and translating her work, uh, you tell us in your introduction that you saw her as a plucky friend. Uh, And you also say that um, you developed quite a community of support. You could, your husband would read drafts aloud to you. Uh, You had a a friend you could send bits of the book to, and, and she would encourage you and say, you know, we need this book now. We need you to keep going. What about this story struck you as something that modern listeners would, would really understand? And, and more than that, that it would really speak directly to the concerns of women today. Yeah. While I was translating the book, um, the Me Too movement kind of exploded in, in interest. Um, and not that there wasn't um, attention before that or to... Um, to sexual harassment, but it became a much more current topic. And, um, and so the experience of translating the book was, um, was in that way, it felt like I would kind of, I would be on my computer, the same computer I was translating on, I would kind of take a break from translating, I would open up the news, and I would see things that sounded very reminiscent of the things that I was reading in the book. Um, and that was really important to me. And so I think that's, that's what that particular friend, uh, Rachel Beth Gross, who was also a, a Jewish studies scholar um, and a friend of mine from, from college, um, what she was referring to when she said we need this book was this sense that like, in our field, we needed to know that there was a history of um, women living under the pressure to perform sexually for men um, and that um, it didn't sort of arise out of nowhere. 
much the same way that I had been trying to demonstrate in my dissertation that conversations around romance between Jews and non-Jews predated the current discourse um, about uh, what contemporary sociologists would, will call a continuity crisis in the Jewish community, uh, which is a very sort of like um, um, a discourse that is now being called into question somewhat, but that for a long time reigned as, um, as the primary description of the state of the current Jewish community is that there is this kind of um, intermarriage was, was, is creating a crisis in, in Jewish continuity. Uh, and so I was trying to kind of question that by, by suggesting that there was a longer history to it and that that feeling of crisis had been around for a very long time and may not actually um, accord with reality. So likewise, this was in some ways like trying to dig a little deeper and show that these histories have been around for a long time and to think about um, how to um, acknowledge that for at least a hundred years and, and of course much, much longer, um, women have been living with these kinds of pressures around what they should be doing with their own bodies uh, and that that has had a profound impact on the lives that they were able to lead, lead um, and the limitations that they lived under and how extraordinary it is that a person could uh, be living with those kinds of pressures and yet produce literature, um, which I think uh, rather than saying, oh, this is women's literature and therefore it's less uh, significant or less important or only about domestic matters or it's trashy literature about the heart or something, I think what we really should be saying is how much the more significant is it that someone who was living under those kinds of pressures was still able to write about it. When you were doing this project, Me Too was an incredibly emotional uh, throughout our culture. And one of the things you had to do in translating the book was translate the title. And you got stuck on one word in the title, which is girl. It had a lot of connotations for you and you struggled with what was the word to use. And you were considering that she was in a culture that where she was undervalued, uh, where the main character of the book risked being used and discarded. Um, and this is a, a story about a grown woman and you're struggling with if the correct translation is the word girl. Can you take us back to the difficulty of that and why you went ahead and used the word girl? Yeah. So it's called Togbuchvan and Ellen the Madel. Madel is is the the uh, Yiddish word for girl. Um, but the protagonist is not a girl in the sense of being very young. In fact, one of the um, one of her suitors is constantly kind of needling her that she's no longer in her spring and that she's in her autumn. She's, she's becoming an old maid and he's always sort of threatening her with that. And so we have the sense that she is probably, if I had to guess, she's probably about 30 years old. So not like, you know, for contemporary um, um, women, I mean, that doesn't feel that old, but probably for her, I did start feeling like, like she maybe was um, on the older side of a single, for a single woman. Um, so in that sense, I felt uncomfortable calling her a girl. It felt pejorative. It felt infantilizing. Um, but that's, you know, what the title said. And not only that, but the title was uh, reproducing that kind of infantilizing um, way that women are spoken about 
uh, were spoken about and continue to be spoken about. And also, I think there's another valence to girl, which is like between us girls and this kind of um, uh, informality that 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 bears. Um, and I and because it's a diary, it has this kind of intimacy and informality. Um, so I do think that it's it's appropriate, but I really did struggle with it because. I wanted to be calling it the diary of a lonely woman because that's how I saw the protagonist. Uh, but I, I think that girl fits with maybe the way that she is positioned socially. Also because Madel and girl uh, are, were both also synonyms for virgin, for an unmarried woman and specifically a virgin. And that's the thing that she is trying to preserve is her virginity throughout the book as she's being pressured to lose it. Um, but another thing, another concern that I had with using the title Diary of a Lonely Girl uh, was that it would get confused with uh, Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl, uh, uh, because that's the, the, the most famous sort of uh, Jewish diary. Um, and so I, I, was, I was cautious about it, but ultimately I felt like it was the most appropriate word. How did you go about approaching Syracuse University Press or did they find you? Uh, great question. Uh, so the Yiddish Book Center's translation program, one of the um, many benefits of the program is that they match you with a mentor who um, works with you outside of the workshop and to whatever extent you, um, the two of you decide. And one of my mentors was Ken Frieden, who is the series editor for this um the, the series that this book is a part of. And so um, after I had worked with him for some time, he told me that he thought that there would be interest um, from Syracuse for this series. Syracuse uh, happens to have a really strong uh, reputation and history of supporting uh, translations from Yiddish. And so this would not be sort of like alone in a sea of, of uh, materials, but actually part of a series and part of um, uh, something that they are building in translation. And so um, so I wrote an email to the acquisitions editor and copied my translation mentor in the email. And it was just sort of a general inquiry that I agonized over writing for a very long time. Uh, and she wrote back uh, almost immediately, very warmly, uh, with great interest. And actually everything I think happened pretty fast after that um, with a proposal and then... Um, and then moving on from there. So it was, I was very lucky. It was the first place that I pitched the book to. Um, I think it's possible that I had pitched it to some other places first, but this was the, the um, an early attempt. Um, and yeah, and um, it, I think the Yiddish Book Center's translation program has been really helpful to get me plugged into the world of translation and understanding who are the players and who are the people who are publishing this kind of work. Um, and also to, it gives me their kind of imprimatur that I'm part of this program. And so I've been trained as a professional translator, um, and I have that kind of stamp, stamp of approval as well. Um, yeah, so, so I think that's been extremely helpful for me. And then the book Diary of a Lonely Girl was released in 2020, uh, which was a worldwide pandemic. Um, and you're also working as a professor and you have small children and you're the editor of, uh, of a journal. So, um, 
this seems a bit like a silly question, but would you like to tell us what you're working on now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It kind of reminds me of like early in the pandemic when you would ask people, how are you? And everyone would just burst burst out laughing instead of answering. Um, But yeah, no, I am, I am working on some things now. Um, I am working on an article about Marion Spitzer, who was an author in English, an English language author uh, of sort of popular uh, middlebrow fiction. And she also was a, um, a, a screenwriter in Hollywood. And so I'm, I'm working on, on her a little bit. I'm also still doing some more translations of Marion Karpilov, um, which I'm pitching around now to different publishers. So, so we'll see how that, how that goes. Um, and yeah, and um, and I'm also working on some translations of a Chicago Yiddish poet named Pessy Pomerantz Honigbaum. Uh, I've been become increasingly interested in learning more about the Yiddish history of Chicago, so that's um, that's part of what I'm doing. And then, if, I mean, the major thing that I'm doing is is teaching. I develop quite a lot of courses. Uh, I teach seven courses a year, as I said, and, and many of them are new. So. Um, so this, the courses that I'm teaching right now, these two women who wrote in Yiddish courses um, are, are ones that I've never taught before. And so that's, that takes up um, a lot of my headspace developing these syllabi. That all sounds really fascinating. And as I'm listening to you talk, my brain is saying, I wish you would teach us a class on time management skills because how <laughs> you do, it, I've lost count, but it sounds like at least 10 things at once is quite phenomenal. <laughs> it's, um, I have a, a very long to-do list and a very supportive spouse. And um, um, I also am someone who is very good at getting, letting go of projects when I think they're done. I, um, I don't like to hold on to things too long. I like to cross things off my to-do list. And I think that's probably helpful for doing so many things. Oh, that's amazing skill to tell us about. That is true. And um, I have to say, I spend a bit of time on Twitter looking at what scholars' questions are and what their worries are so that I can use them to inform the podcast. And that is a recurring question. How do I know when I'm done? How do I know when it's enough? Yeah. I mean, for me, the answer is I don't want to look at it anymore. And somebody else has decided that maybe they'd like to look at it now. And that's that's a good point to send it to an editor. And especially as an editor, um, on the other end of it, I would always rather have the thing than have someone holding onto it for too long um, because I have a publication schedule to manage. And um, I would rather have it in my hands and be able to offer some feedback than to have someone agonizing over it on the other end. Um, so I, I think about that you know, from that perspective when I'm trying to decide if I'm gonna send something out I say like, well, actually this, it might be better off now in somebody else's hands than mine because I just can't read it anymore, but somebody else will come at it with fresh eyes and offer good editorial suggestions. So um, I have a lot of trust in editors. I um, I think no one should uh, ever try to publish anything without having it edited first, either by a friend or by a professional. And I use that. I send things off to, to when I think that they're done. Well, thank you for that advice and for being on the show today and telling us about your book, Diary of a Lonely Girl or the Battle Against Free Love. We've been talking with Dr. Jessica Kurzane 
I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.